you know, when you leave work at 4.30, you're racing to law school, you get there after five, you're trying to put something to, you know, a quick, quick dinner to start <laughs> classes at six o'clock, classes are over at 10 o'clock. Now you're all wired because the last <laughs> professor has called you. By the time I got home about almost 11 o'clock, you can't go to sleep. And that's where my insomnia started many, many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. It's been a little bit since we've released a new episode, um, but we are back and I'm super excited for today's episode. We are joined by Nigel Shepard today, and he's here to talk about um, not only his experience, he's been in the industry for so many years, um, but also how he looks at metrics when assessing claims and just kind of to measure how counsel and the claims are moving along. Um, and just the importance that he sees in metrics. So, and then he just has so many great stories to share about, uh, you know, his experience throughout the years in claims. So with that, let's bring him in. Good morning, Nigel. Welcome to the Defense of Arrest today. I'm so happy to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely looking forward to this. Um, so, you know, you and I talked uh, not so long ago um, about coming, coming on the podcast and I I, I think we have so much to talk about today because you've had so much experience. And then, you know, during our conversation, we were talking a lot about um, how, how you value and look at like metrics and your, your the metrics that your outside counsel show you. And that's kind of how you evaluate how, how cases are going and who you like and who you don't like. So I want to dive into that in a little bit. Uh, but before we get there, I want to talk about you. Um, so everyone knows who, who Nigel is and why, why we're talking to you and why we should listen to what you have to say. <laughs> But, you know, you're currently the chief claims officer at Kingston Insurance, um, but that's not where you started. You, I, you, I mean, you're a lawyer by trade, um, and I get a lot of lawyers on this podcast. Um, it's shocking, I know. Um, but we all have different ways of how we got there um, and why we got there. And I, I'm always so interested to hear about everyone's path because it 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 it's I get such wide range of responses to it so I'm curious like you know how did you decide that you know you wanted to go to law school to your, were your parents lawyers or were you like me that you just didn't know what else to do so that's just what you did um so I'm curious how you ended up there yeah it would be great to say that I wanted to get into the claims industry when I got my first claims adjuster kit for Christmas when I was six years old but that would not <laughs> be you know, I, I came out, as everyone else does, you come out from college and um, your parents are telling you you need to find a job because <laughs> you won't be living here forever. And so I started looking. And quite frankly, like most people that got into this industry, which is probably one of the problems, um, I kind of fell into it. I saw an ad. It was with Allstate Insurance Company. So I cut my teeth in the insurance industry with Allstate. Um, and then I moved over to AIG. Then I discovered something called reinsurance, and they hired a company called NACRI hired me. Um, and while there, um, my boss had taken me out to lunch um, with all the heads of other reinsurance companies. And I'm about 23 years old. I'm sitting with all these senior people, and I realized that that's the job that I wanted, and that 80% of the people at that table had a law degree. Mm -hmm. So I just drew those two lines together and said, look, if that's the position I want, I need a law degree. So I went to law school at night. Okay. Um, so doing that, you know, I have to admit, I came out obviously with the law degree and I passed New York Bar, but I would honestly say that the thing I really got out of it is when you work full time in the law school at night, at that point, I realized there isn't any challenge you can throw at me after that <laughs> that I'm going to yeah. be, you know, afraid of. Um, and so that was a, the big walk away from that. And so I came out, I, I stayed in reinsurance for a while, um, all domestic. And then I got into international. I moved to London. Um, I headed up, I was a global head of claims for one for two different companies. Um, came back to the States, worked for New York Fair Plan for a while. And then I got into high net worth um, claims with another company. And then about a year and a half ago, I joined Kingstone Insurance Company as a chief claims officer and senior vice president. So I've had experience in both domestic, international, direct insurance, and in reinsurance. Yeah. Well, so back to when, when you were going to law school at, at night, 
How, I mean, how was that experience for you? Because I imagine it was like, it was like you had two jobs, you know, like when I went to law school, I took it seriously, but it was still like kind of an extension of college, you know, like that, that was the mentality of a lot of people around me. But when you go at night, you are, you're not there for really fun. <laughs> you are there to well, get, exactly. get stuff done. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but I would say that because you have such limited time because you have a full-time job, I felt like I maximized my time much better. Mm-hmm. And I would honestly say, I'm not sure I would have done any better had I gone to law school full-time. Um, it would have been easier on me, <laughs> but I don't think I would use the time or maximize my time the way that I did. But, you know, when you leave work at 430, you're racing to law school, you get there after five, you're trying to put something to, you know, a quick, quick dinner <laughs> to start classes at six o'clock, classes are over at 10 o'clock. Now you're all wired because the last <laughs> professor has called you. And, and, you know, I was the last person between leaving class and answering that question. So no pressure at all. Mm-hmm. So you're all kind of wired up. By the time I got home about almost 11 o'clock, you can't go to sleep. And that's where my insomnia started many, many years ago. (laughs) (laughs) You're up, you're thinking, and I would say the first, it's a four-year program, by the way. I would say the first year I would come home, still have to study, you know, until about two o'clock in the morning, get up at six, go to work and start all over again. Um, But I would say that the amount of studying I had to do decreased dramatically as the years progressed. <laughs> yeah. But that's a grind though, too. Yeah. I mean, it, that yeah. is, it's a long, long grind. Cause then you, you, have, you never had any downtime for your brain because right. you, you're overstimulating it, you know, at night through school, then you have to do your reading for the next day. And then you have to go to a job right. and it's not like you're going to a job that you're like phoning it in. You also have to use your brain, right. <laughs> in your and, job. And it was a job that involved also a lot of traveling. So oh. I spend a lot of time when I'm on the airplane actually reading my law school books as well. Wow. So like, there was no downtime at all. I'm either in class, at work, at home studying, or on a plane or at the hotel room reading law school books. <laughs> and is this, is that, did it kind of fit your personality though? Is that, are you like a, a go, go, go all the time? Or was it just at the time you just had to do it because that's what needed to be done? Honestly, um, one of my skill sets is really setting strategy. And this was part of the strategy, as I said. I saw this is what I needed to do to get to my end goal. So I did that. And, and to be honest, and, and once I start something, I don't quit. And so I'm, I remember sitting in law school for the first day. And I remember saying to myself, well, now you've done it. Because now <laughs> I've started. Now I have to finish this. <laughs> so um, it wasn't really that much more thought other than the fact that it was what I needed to do to get to where I needed to be. Yeah. Um, so when you, and at the time you were, you were, you were working at a, a was a that when you were at a reinsurance? Okay. Right. So it, it's funny when you, I hear reinsurance, there's so much confusion about as to what, or maybe it's my confusion of what reinsurance is. But I remember distinctly at one, my old law firm, um, I had a colleague there that was a you know a good friend of mine like a mentor and he was leaving and he was going to a reinsurance company I was like yeah like do what is reinsurance and he's like I don't know I just googled it before my interview same here, same here. <laughs> and it worked and he's like and I got the job I was like well I hope you figure it out when <laughs> well, that's not like my experience I was sitting at AIG um as a litigation specialist working on cases for the five boroughs of New York, I did. And I got a phone call and I'm living in Queens, working in Long Island. I get a phone call about a job in Connecticut, in Connecticut. But I remember driving there and it was for reinsurance. I did the same thing. I looked it up, but back then, you know, we, I, I just couldn't Google it. <laughs> <'Cause this> is- <laughs> yeah. And so I looked it up and all I saw was reinsurance is the insurance of insurance. Yep. And that's all I knew walking into the interview was it was insurance of insurance. Other than that, I couldn't tell you anything else. But I, but I still learned a, a lot more. Um, the way that I look at it is the it's like going to war, right? And so the if you're on the direct insurance side, you are the soldiers at the front line, right? Reinsurance, we're the generals way in the back, overseeing what you're doing and trying to place you in the right positions and, and kind of sending you guidance and things like that. Yeah. 
Um, but I mean, it's it's complicated because it, it it it's oh it it's like an almost like an excess kind of layer in a way. Like it doesn't wow. really see a lot of the the litigation like courtroom action so much as it's like way behind the scenes. Exactly. And the other thing too is when you're on a direct side, you're looking at that individual file, you're trying to manage that case as best as you can. From the reinsurance, it's really looking at the book of business. So if I'm insuring XYZ insurance company, I'm more concerned about how you are managing all your claims. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking at it from more of a holistic approach. Well, and that that background though must have really like been a really good ground groundwork for where you are now you know, to be able to look at the holistic picture versus like the, you know, a smaller funnel. Well, absolutely. And keep in mind too, as a reinsurer, we'll go into other insurance companies and do a reinsurance audit or reinsurance claim review. So I got to see how other carriers were managing their claims. And so when I sit back and I talk about, okay, let's put together some best practices. Okay, I could draw on experiences that I've had for companies that I work for, but I can also draw on the vast number of companies that I've audited over the years and kind of pick and choose what I thought worked and what didn't work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what made you, or how, what was the precipice to move on from, from that um, to somewhere else? Honestly, I mean, from the reinsurance market? or Yes, yeah. Honestly, I, I got an opportunity mm-hmm. to be the head of global claims for a company and moved to London. Yeah, but that take it too. both insurance and reinsurance. Uh, so that, that was a great opportunity. Um, you know, I, I was working two blocks away from the Lloyds. Yeah. Uh, you know, what I call the grandfather of insurance. So mm-hmm. it was just an absolute wonderful experience to be able to be able to sit there, work there, understand that market. Well, and I hear that. So two of my partners, they've visited Lloyd's and like it's just the experience of going to that building from what I understand is just it's it's an experience oh itself it really is um because in in a lot of ways I feel here in the states we haven't done when I say we're talking about the insurance industry we haven't done a great job of branding ourselves right and and so people always look at us as I don't want to work for insurance (laughs) but it's amazing when you go to London and you're talking about Lloyd's it's like you really walk in there with a sense of pride because like everyone knows where the Lloyd's is. Everyone knows the building. It just kind of stands out. And, and so it really was seeing insurance from a much different vantage point, if you will. Yeah. I don't, I don't think like Hartford, Connecticut has the same like insurance capital <laughs> feel as London. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not the same. And I, can, I grew up in Connecticut. I, I'm very familiar with Hartford. <laughs> It's just, it's, it's not a draw. <laughs> right. And it's funny because when you're walking down like downtown financial district, um, a lot of the brokers, when they want to discuss a claim with you, they'll walk over to your office with the file. So it's, as I'm walking down the street from, at lunchtime, you will see brokers with claim files like in their arms walking to a client. Now you don't see that if you walk down, you know, Wall Street in New York City, you're, you're not really seeing that. No, no, it, it, but... I, I also think that the, the London business market is just so much more like buttoned up professional. Like it's just a different feel than I think we have here. Yes. Yeah. It's like, it, I don't know. It's like more old school in a way. It, it certainly is because <laughs> a funny story, um, a couple of months, because when I interviewed for that job, I actually interviewed in their Bermuda office because they're having a board meeting. <laughs> Um, also not and, so bad. And they were all casual, so I assumed they were business casual. So I got rid of all of my suits before moving to London. <laughs> Two weeks before I happened to be speaking to who would be my new boss, and I just kind of mentioned, oh, it's your business casual. She goes, oh, no, the London office is business hire. <laughs> <laughs> so all those suits that I've accumulated all those years I've gotten rid of, now I have to buy an abundance of suits in a very short period of time. So to your point, yeah, it, it really is a professional look. Um, yes. You couldn't walk into Lloyd's back then. It may have changed now unless your tie was all the way up. You had a jacket on. Yeah. I mean, but that's also like, I feel like I mean, we're going way off topic on <laughs> a business attire, but that is kind of like the London look. It's like that, that slim fit suit type look and to go on the, the hot 
tube <laughs> and sweat. <laughs> um, but in any any event, so you know, let let's move forward though a little bit to to what you're doing now at, at Kingstone. Um, but I also wanted to touch a little bit on before we get there on the boroughs because you mentioned you know you mentioned being in the in the Bronx borough, and I know that's something that Josh is very very familiar with the appeal. And I say <laughs> you say that in in I don't really mean appeal uh, way of the boroughs and what they they bring. And I know a lot of your your claims now are in the boroughs. So you know, I, Josh could probably weigh in a little bit on this too, but it is just a headache to have cases in the boroughs. <laughs> I mean, they just, it is like its own animal. Like, I, I mean, I deal with Philly a lot, um, but anytime that I'd have any cases in any of the boroughs, it's like, it's going to cost my client a lot of money because you, you'll go, it'll get adjourned for no real reason. Then you'll go back and it'll get adjourned for no real reason. You're there for a calendar call that takes forever. And then your client's like, well, you know, why is this bill so high? Well, because I had to go four times and they sent a per diem there every time asking for an adjournment. I have to keep going back and the, you know, the, the clerk doesn't listen to me. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah, so you're right. Um, I guess for me, because when I started way back um, with AID and I was, and I was litigation specialist focusing on the five boroughs, I was all but 22 long on 23. And so for me, that's how I got my start. So I'm very comfortable in terms of, of managing cases within the five boroughs. The, the other thing I think about often too is, is that sometimes we have a certain impression about certain venues. And I'm not always certain if that's a bias that we have because we kind of talk about it and, and we've had a bad experience here or there. Um, so what we're trying to do is to really see, does the data really support our impression of the five boroughs? Because I will tell you, some, some of my worst verdicts have been like in the Midwest and, and mm -hmm. out in the West Coast. Like for some reason, I know what to expect in the Bronx and Brooklyn. And, and But, you know, I've got hitting really hard in Texas. I've got hitting <laughs> really hard in Illinois and then in California with some fire companies. Um, and so I really want to start looking at data to see, is New York City as bad or dangerous as we actually think that it is, or just kind of a built-in bias that we have within ourselves? Yeah. I think that, oh, I was gonna say, I think that's a great point, Nigel, because I think people do have this fear almost of the five boroughs, but in reality, it's extremely predictable. Like the the values may be higher and the the, the verdicts may be more than what we than than what we would hope they would be, but they are extremely predictable. The injuries correlate to the values, I think, very well in the Bronx or Brooklyn, uh, you know, all the venues in New York City. So that's one thing that I think could help, you know, um, look at it from a claims perspective and data is it's very predictable. You're not going to get nuclear verdicts nearly as much as you would in Texas or Florida or some of the Midwest states. So I, I think that's something that, um, you know, you touched on that's very, um, that can help on the, from the claims perspective is that it is very predictable. Yeah, I, I, I would like Philly's kind of similar to you kind of, you know, that, you know, it's a devil that, you know, right. um, and I think the unpredictability about at least Philly is not so much the verdicts. It's more of what might the rulings that you might or may not see. And then I, I've seen a similar thing in the boroughs. It's just, it's a time suck. So then it, you end up having the, the clients end up having to pay more because you have to keep going back because things get it pushed but it's not so, at least in my experience in philly too it's very like similar and what what you're getting and like when you have discovery motions it's it's the unpredictability of the rulings that you may may see or the decision making that you may see that kind of sets you back um because you don't sometimes don't see as thoughtful decision making <laughs> <laughs> as you may elsewhere. <laughs> um, Nigel, when you're looking um, at, you know, Kingstone's, you know, business across, let's just take New York, for example, do you look at it from a macro, macro perspective of the state in general? Do you break it down by borough or by the city versus upstate, downstate? How, did, how do you typically break down the portfolio and how you assess the risk and managing the claims? 
Yeah, we look at it in terms of the five boroughs for New York City, um, look at it in terms of Long Island as a separate, <laughs> and then upstate New York is completely different. It might as well be a different country then. <laughs> so when I try to explain to people, most of our business is written in New York, I always have the caveat that downstate New York, the five boroughs of Long Island is completely different than something you'll see in way upstate New York. Oh, yeah. um, and when I say upstate, I'm talking really upstate, like Buffalo and Syracuse and so forth. Yeah. A lot of people that think upstate's anything past Westchester County, so <laughs> I just want to make that distinction. Um, but we definitely look at it that way um, because you're right. It's, it's the, the judges are different, the rules are different, the, the composition of a potential jury pool is going to be completely different as well. So all those things have to be taken into consideration. What I'm looking to bring on defense counsel, particularly in the five boroughs. You know, I really want someone who really understands how the fiber was operating. That's completely. So, and when you do that, like, what what is it that in particular you're looking for um, in, in your outside counsel? Because it has to change, uh, like you said, according to where the case is venued. Because, yeah, you might want a, a different kind of approach. You definitely want a different type of approach, say, an upstate New York versus the boroughs or like how we see in Pennsylvania, like the middle of Pennsylvania is totally different from, you know, Philly and Pittsburgh. So, you know, what are some characteristics that you're looking for in your council in comparison to those types of jurisdictions? Yes. You know, I'm always thinking in terms of the end game. So the end game is at, at some point, if you have to face a girl, right, I try to want as much as I can on predictability. But if I have to do that, what counsel do I think is going to do a much better job standing in front of um, a Bronx jury or a you know or a Suffolk County jury? Um, you know, I because I've seen some attorneys. I've said to myself, look, if I had a case upstate or someplace else, I probably wouldn't want this particular person to be representing me. But if I have a case, you know, in the five boroughs. Oh, I could just see this person <laughs> attaching themselves to the to the jury pool and really making good impression and speaking the language and things like that. So it's it's a lot of different things that kind of play into it. It's just not all about your technical ability mm -hmm. uh, to understand the law and things like that. It's about how are you going to present yourself if it ever comes to that point in front of a jury for us. It, it, that's definitely something that I've had or I've heard come up before. Um, someone on this podcast once said to me that they're like, look, I expect all my attorneys to be exceptional. And, you know, that, that's just the baseline. They're all, you're all supposed to be good, but it's what you do after that, that matters. So, you know, you expect everyone to be competent and exceptional, but you, you're trying to figure out who's going to be the best person for this particular case and this particular venue, because let's face it, cases are all different too. You, you might not hire the same person for one case versus the next because it just right. there's there's optics there <laughs> exactly it's all right um one thing that i'm always curious to know um from the claims perspective is how the cases are how the cases are measured how internally you measure the cases in terms of looking at from uh, how long the you know the claim's been opened uh the average close rate you know things like that and i was just wondering if you could maybe speak to how you measure the cases from uh, a Kingstone in you know, for the metrics that always helps defense counsel. So we kind of know what, you know, the, the adjusters are dealing with and what they need to, you know, you know, get in and get out the door. And I think it, that also helps us. So I was just wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, some of the metrics to look at, one of the most important metrics is really the cycle time, how long that case has been open. Because, um, you know, you all saying um, claims do not age the way wine does. case <laughs> is a closed case. Um, so I take a look at that because often what I find is, and I and I honestly I put fault on both sides. I put fault on defense counsel as well as as claim staff. And when I'm saying this, I'm not talking about Kingston. I'm talking about claims overall. Um, is that we tend sometimes to get into this routine that we get this case, we've seen it before, and we kind of go through, you know, these steps that we always do. And at some point, I look at a file and I see, like, I see what you're doing, but why are you doing all this? So the case is ready to settle. Just, just settle the case. You don't have to cross every T and dot every I. Just get that case settled as quickly as possible. So one of the things we have done in Kingston is we've actually created an early claims resolution team to do just that, is to kind of keep the small claims small. 
So before someone starts talking to their neighbors and now they're seeing big numbers or getting an attorney or something, get that case settled as quickly as possible. You don't need all the information. If you have enough information, make a settlement, be aggressive, aggressive about it and get that case closed. <laughs> so cycle time is definitely important. The other thing too is <clears throat> how well are we evaluating that case? Right, and we're being realistic about it. And we have to realize that claims is really an art form, it's not a science. And so you're not gonna get that. There's no really one right number. And so the difficulty that I see in the industry is, is how do we define what a win is? You know, what's a win, <laughs> right? Or did I adequately reserve that case based on the settlement? And so when do I measure that? I could always be adequately reserved a month before I sell the case, right? Because I'm pretty much getting there. But so at, at what time period? And so what I do is for a liability case, I say, okay, if on average they're open for a year and a half, if they're in litigation, I want to know the measurement against the six-month mark and the year mark, and then measure that. And then it's also about, okay, this is a settlement. As long as I feel my reserves were like maybe 15% plus or minus from that number, that's how I define an adequate reserve. It's not that, you know, the case settled for 400,000, I would reserve 375,000, so I'm 25,000 under reserve. No, you're never going to get it right. It's about plus or minus, and we have to look at it both ways as well. Being over-reserved is as bad as being under-reserved. Unfortunately, we don't get treated the same way. Those two things don't get treated the same way. People look at though as though if I sell the case below my reserve, I've done a really good thing. And that could be the case. But if you're over-reserving your files <laughs> and then selling them lower, you know, that doesn't help the company as well. So you really have to define what you think an adequate reserve is. And once again, as I said before, it's about that plus or minus percentage-wise yeah. above that final settlement number. It's like taxes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, 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 having a big refund is not necessarily always ideal. <laughs> right, exactly. You're your money, earning all the interest. <laughs> do you, oh, sorry. Do you no. find, I'm oh, sorry, do you find that, um, the, uh, the, the litigations, the, the adjusters that work you know, with you and for you, do they typically have struggle over reserving, under reserving? Where is it kind of, uh, you know, is it equal? You know, where do you see that, or how do the adjusters typically handle it? Where do you kind of see the issues there in terms of the uh, reserving? Because I know, you know, people, uh, at least defense counsel, don't understand that when you reserve a file, that money is being spoken for, and the company, you know, has to set that aside. So over reserving, under reserving can be, you know, a big problem for for carriers. So I'm just curious as to whether you see more over-reserving versus under-reserving. Yeah, and, and once again, uh, my comments, it's about what I've seen from my experience. Oh, yeah. Um, typically what I find, particularly on the liability side, is that oftentimes they're slow to get the reserves up. And what I mean by that is, is that they want to get all the medicals in and all the information in and then react to that. And here's an example that I often give. It's an auto accident, you're insured, rare and someone else, that car is a total loss and the person in that car gets airlifted. I have no medicals, I don't know anything else. I'm in fact, I know it's full liability because that car was legally stopped, we already ended it. We totaled the car, so it was a pretty bad impact. And the person was airlifted. Now I can't tell you if this is a multi-million dollar case, I'm not sure if the person died or not, but I can tell you that the stat reserve that you're currently sitting at at 20,000 is grossly inaccurate. <laughs> and I have seen in my past where people will keep it at the 20 until they actually get all the medicals and everything in. I'm like, okay, I don't know what the real number is, but put a significant dollar amount up just based on the circumstances that you, you have seen and you know at that point. So that's what I typically find, Josh, is a, it's just a slowness to respond to what the potential exposure is. So in that sense, um, they kind of under-reserved at the beginning, too slow to respond to potential exposure. I was gonna say, and I think that also, um, you know, the slowness to, to increase the reserve, I think also goes hand in hand with um, sometimes, you know, I've seen in my experience, 
you know, uh, claims struggling to, re to, to resolve cases early on because they're not making aggressive offers up front. They may offer, on the case you just explained, they may offer $5,000 because they have to tick a box and offer $5,000 and not go after it and try to resolve, you know, try to actually resolve the case, you know, kick it down the can to the litigation teams. And then, you know, then they're kind of, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, stuck with it. So I, I think that slowness to reserve and also, um, you know, being aggressive in those initial offers, uh, I think, uh, are, is another thing that I'm seeing that I think would also be very helpful in trying to reserve claims early on. I think that's uh, something that, uh, you know, I've seen and that's something that, you know, can be helpful. Exactly. Absolutely right. Um, well, I wanted to touch back on the, what you said about uh, <clears throat> the idea of like having to almost check the boxes. Uh, do you feel as though that sometimes the council's like drive to have to like do all the things comes from like a place of inexperience? Like that's when I've seen it. Seen it. It's like people who like, well, they don't really know how to really think about the case. So they'll be like, but I know I should serve discovery and then I should take depositions rather than like taking a step back and be like, wait, <laughs> what? what is my end goal here? And what is the best way to get to my, my end goal? And do I really need to do all those things? But sometimes I feel like it's an inexperience or, or lack of confidence in your ability to, to make the call. So you just go through the steps. Yeah, I think it's a combination. I mean, I've had attorneys in the past that no matter what case you give to them, one of the first things that they do is they make a motion for summary judgment, right? And I'm like, okay, you're never going to win it on this case. If, so don't check that box. Don't, don't put the effort in. Don't bill me for this. You're never going to, we're never going to win this. All right. But it's just, to me, it's one of the things that they have to go through in their minds. And so once again, get it back to check in the box. So things like that. Um, it, it, to me, it's, it's really the fault of both parties because what should really happen when a new case comes in within the first two weeks get together the claims professional and the attorney and you start thinking about a strategy. Is this a case that just should be settled? Is this a case that we could be trying to try? And that can change over time. But start thinking about a strategy, what you want to do or accomplish to get this case settled at a reasonable dollar as quickly as possible. And oftentimes, because you're not having that conversation up front, everyone is going through their own box yep. checking on yep. both sides. Yeah. And that's the, I think that's so key is that, that conversation, like, ha, like what, like, so you have an agreement, like, what do we want to do here? Like, because sometimes, sometimes carriers, like they have a different approach, like, nope, we want to push till the end and we don't want to show weakness. We want, we don't want to settle. And that, that might be what they want to do. And so you just have to have the conversation to be like, okay, how do you see this going? Because this is how I see this going. But if that's not in line with that particular carrier's view, then okay, fine. We have to adjust our plan. Uh, but you have to have the discussion <laughs> in order to know you're on the same page. <laughs> oh, exactly. Um, and you're right about that. You kind of reminded me of something. Um, when I worked in New York Fair Plan, um, I got there a few months before you know, Superstorm Sandy came in here. Mm. Um, and then after that, there were just a lot of lawsuits because obviously a lot of companies denying coverage saying it was flood. And so these law firms that I won't mention their names, but from the South and the Midwest came to New York and they're going to make all this money, right? I remember sitting with my president at the time and with the board of directors and I said, this is what we need to do as a strategy. We're the fair plan. Um, we're small. And so these law firms just think they can come here. And they're going to try to sue as quickly as possible, do no work, and we're going to write a big check. No, we're going to fight them on every single case. We're going to make them work for this. And guess what? They didn't want to work that hard. <laughs> so yeah. they started backing off. But it was a strategy. But I said to the board that, we, you know, we have to be prepared to spend a lot of money defending these cases. Mm -hmm. Because we are paying for our reputation within the industry. Because if we lose this time, the next time a big storm happens, those law firms are coming right back at us. So this is where we have to draw, you know, our line in the sand. But that's a strategy that, you know, myself and, and the board of directors and council all got together and discussed. So you really have to have that up front. If that's not your strategy, that's fine. But identify what you're trying to accomplish 
And the reason right. you're trying to accomplish that and then move forward with that. But from the, the viewpoint of outside counsel, like it, you need to understand the, the strategy of your carrier. If you want to keep working with them, like you can't just be an independent mind, be like, this is how I'm going to do it. Like it, it, this is a business relationship and we're here to help serve, you know, serve the client. So you can't just do your own thing if that's not what they want to do. That's not probably not a great strategy to keep them along, <laughs> to, to oh, keep I, them. Absolutely. You're right. Because some companies, you know, they believe in nuisance value cases and they're like, they do the economics and say, look, I'd rather just write a check for 5000 if I owe nothing because it's going to cost me more to even try to defend this for a couple of months. Um, some companies say, no, we're not doing that because all we're doing is encouraging people to keep suing us. So you're absolutely right. You have to understand what your carrier is trying to accomplish and then move forward. And, uh, and throughout your, oh, sorry, and throughout, your um, throughout your career, Nigel, how much have you taken into consideration the reputation that the company you worked for was being perceived uh, you know, outside the company, you know, specifically with, you know, with, with the, uh, you know, plaintiff's firms and defense firms, meaning, you know, you know, you don't want to be, a, you know, have you considered like not being a company that is just going to settle no matter what, at the very end is going to fold or they settle early on or, you know, um, you know, whatever, whatever they give you in the beginning, they're going to offer you more at the end. Have you, have you taken those things into consideration when developing your strategies as to how you're going to handle the claims? Oh, absolutely. Because you're, you're right. Um, and, and that's viewed from both ways. You're right. Plaintiff's counsel, they're going to pick up on that and they talk amongst each other. So they understand their reputation. You're, you're absolutely right. You know, don't worry about this company. They talk a mean game. They're never going to try a case. <laughs> and so at some point in the courtroom steps, they're going to make you a, a bigger offer. But also on the other side, I look at it the same way too. This plaintiff's counsel has never tried a case. They don't want to try a case. They don't want to do any work. And so they're just talking a lot of stuff now. But eventually they're going to sell as well. So it, it does work both ways. But kind of getting back to your question, yes, I definitely take a look at that. Um, and I try to make sure that we are not painting that picture where we're always painting it. Um, anytime I join a new company, one of the first things I look at is how many cases have we tried over the last three years? Yeah. And then I hear the numbers, well, we haven't tried any. And then I'm like, okay, well, they, you know, when I say that plaintiff's counsel, they know that. The plaintiff's bar, <laughs> they know you haven't tried any cases. Yeah. And that's sending a message that you're afraid to try cases. And, and so you have to be cognizant of that as well. Yeah. But there's also that flip side, though, with the, like with trying of cases, because it, it really just does not happen as much anymore. Right. Um, I mean, even in like my career, I've seen it not happen as much anymore. Just I, I think on both sides, no, like no one, plaintiff's counsel included, like there's so much unpredictability and trying a case and the time and expense that goes into it it even doesn't it's sometimes not even worth it for them you know because they don't want to it is a roll in the dice and they could get nothing out of it so i i i've just seen a decrease on on both sides um and like it's a lot of times i know as much as they do like they don't they don't want to do this like they don't want to spend the time doing this like it's you know, they have to do a lot of work. Yeah, it's, it's all posturing. I know you don't want to do this. You know, I don't want to do this. But she's trying to get together and kind of reach um, a, a settlement here. In fact, the judge doesn't want this to happen either because it's a lot of work for them too. Yeah, uh, we, we actually, at Kingston, we actually do, every quarter we actually have a mediation day. We actually have one this coming Thursday. So we try to bring in a, a, a bunch of cases and try to mediate those all on the same day. So that has worked extremely well for us. So to me, at the end of the day, is as long as you kind of have your strategy, you're sticking with it, um, and you're having communication with the other party, that goes a long way. Don't sit back and wait for someone to make the first offer or demand. Just be aggressive, be proactive, and, and just pick up the phone and start talking to people. But you're right. Um, you know, I'm a person that took a $260 million verdict years ago. Um, wow. I, I changed that. You couldn't even do the math to even come close to the number. Um, eventually, I we were able to sell it for a million dollars. But that just shows the unpredictability of what the jury can do. Um, you know, there's no way on earth that you could take a, a person that's 20-something years old, single, no dependents, because um, of fatality, so it was a bad accident, but they died right at the scene. Um, they made $30,000 a year. Like I said, they were 20-something years old, no defense or anything else. The math never gets you to $260 million. Never. And I don't care what <laughs> you happen to say. Never gets there. <laughs> <Right>. so, 
But the thing about that is, and I have to be cautious, is that if you do experience something like that, you don't let that impact the next case yeah. that you manage. And I find that's a difficulty. Lots of times we'll read something, we'll see an article about a big verdict, and then all of a sudden it impacts you. And you say, well, now I'm nervous. I don't want to take the next case much further. And so there may be a tendency to oversell that next case. So be very cautious of that. So I was very cautious about the next few cases that I managed after that verdict, just to make sure that wasn't occurring. Yeah. I I remember like early on my career, the first case I got to try on my own, um, it was a Philly case and it was an arb arbitration appeal and it was like a case I inherited from somebody else and I had to take it to trial and I didn't know what the heck I was doing <laughs> it was the first I was doing it on my own and the, it was like an appeal of from a twelve thousand dollar arbitration award so like should not have been a big case and I remember I kept recommending let's settle let's settle let's settle and the adjuster just what was dug his heels in the sand and like didn't want to settle and then I got a $300,000 verdict <laughs> and when I walked back to the office to the partner's office I was like I am not gonna have a job tomorrow <laughs> but it wasn't my like it wasn't really my fault like I remember I, I the jury was out and I called the adjuster and left a message being like they will settle for I think it was like 18,000 like right now and he like didn't call me back and then the verdict came back and I I it was but it was a terrible walk of shame for me <laughs> and after that I I was scared after I was like well that could happen again but it was it was a learning experience uh for for sure for all of us involved um but it's, it's just so point. unpredictable it is but you just kind of brought up a point with me um like as a carrier, we understand we're the client, right? We're your client. <laughs> but here's this, and 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 now I use and that example you just gave. Obviously, the examiner dug, you know, the heels in, and that's what they wanted. But I would say to defense counsel, do not be afraid to really tell us what you feel. Yes. Um, I had one counsel once. Like, we may be in a room with other people, and you know, he may tone it down a bit. But if he disagrees, I guarantee you, before I leave that building, he grabs me, takes me to a corner, and then really tells me what he thinks. Now, at the end of the day, it's still my call. But I need to really get that input from the fence. Don't go along with it because I want to settle it. I'm digging my heels in. Um, call me out on it if I'm doing something that just doesn't make any sense. But I said, at the end of the day, it is going to be my call, but I, I do want that feedback and that honest feedback. Yeah. And I'm just speaking for myself. I will say maybe not everyone can take that feedback or even want it, but I'm telling you, I want that feedback. And that's, and that's a partnership I want. To me, it's a true partnership. You know, there's certain experiences and expertise that defense counsel has that I don't have. And yeah. so I need to elicit that from you. Well, and I think we all need to recognize too, we don't know everything too. And, you know, and, you know, we, I think as the attorneys, you need to honor your experience and your assessment and offer recommendations versus just being a yes person, because the yes person doesn't really get you anywhere. And in fact, it probably hurts everybody involved. And like, look, we all benefit from a counter point of view, right? Like the way I see a case, I could go to Josh and Josh could be like, Hey, like, but what about this? And, it, you know, sometimes you just have that tunnel vision on, you only see it your way until someone offers a different point of view on it. And it's like, well, actually, I think you should be looking at this or what about this? And then it, it, it helps. It, it makes everything, you know, it gives you a broader evaluation. It, it, it more exact and you can get better results, I think. Right. And, and it's funny you say that because in my past with a really complicated case, I have brought in people from the company that don't work in claims <laughs> mm -hmm. because, you know, I could bring a group of, you know, my litigation team or my liability team. There can be six of us in the room and we can have different opinions, but it's all within the certain box because we all have certain biases. Yeah. We, we're all still thinking with insurance claims brains. We try to look at things a certain way. I could bring someone in from account that all of a sudden looks at the case completely different. But guess what? It's not going to, if this case ever goes to trial, 
I'm not going to have a bunch of insurance claims people sitting there, right? <laughs> You're definitely not going to have one even. <laughs> right, exactly. So why would I, why am I bouncing things off of you? Sometimes I like that other viewpoint because in my past, I've seen it where another person's come in taking a completely different look at it. And also we're all sitting there going, oh, wow, we never even thought about that. And it does really help to bring in that different perspective. Oh, for sure. I, I sometimes run things by like my brother, you know, yeah. and, and I, I remember running a case by him, you know, a, a year or so ago. And I, I explained the whole thing and said, wait, 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 they are, I mean, they, they got money from, you know, from their company for the injury. What do they need anything else for? I'd give them nothing. And I was like, fair point. <laughs> because <laughs> we just have this idea like oh but you know they're gonna have the lean on the board and then the, you know and then we do like all our like claims math and right. you know and my, but my brother was like but but they already got like x so why do they need anything more and i'm like i i, I guess you know and like and it's going to be people like like him sitting right. there like you know d deciding it all but then of course there's you can't predict a jury. You just don't know what emotion is going to be on there. You too. Like you could have one of him and, you know, 11 of another. So <laughs> how, how do you feel about, because we were talking, we were talking a lot about like checking the boxes and things like that. How do you feel about, you know, young, like younger attorneys working on files, like kind of, kind of like the, the learning curve involved, like there's, there's an importance there to having younger attorneys work on claims files so they get experience so they can be experienced attorneys. But it does come at some sort of a cost though to carriers because it they a lot of times take more time, might spin their wheels. So I'm always curious to hear like what the carrier's viewpoint is on, on the, that like learning process that has to kind of happen on, on the attorney side. Yeah, I, I take a practical approach to that. I mean, I understand it's gonna happen my my sense is let's just be fair to partnership um i shouldn't be paying for your learning curve or for your developing your staff so i would take that in consideration i would think that if you have a, long, a young attorney on a case there's always a senior attorney overseeing um you know the bottom line is on, on the building part if things are taking longer i would hope that you would adjust that <laughs> it shouldn't take you know if a seasoned attorney would have taken four hours to do something and this person is taking seven, then don't bill me for the seven because now I'm paying for that learning curve. So just, just be conscious of that aspect of it. Um, but honestly, the fact that it's a junior attorney overall, everything else other than the billing aspect is not really a concern for me at all. Because once again, um, I like different perspectives and they may see something that's different. Yeah. Sometimes as an attorney that's been around for too long, <laughs> And, and, you know, and, and that's not a benefit to us as well. Um, they re may remember how a certain venue was 30 years ago, which is great, but it has changed over the years. And so, yeah. you know, so the other person coming in only has five years of experience, but five years with that venue, they know how that venue operates today. It didn't matter what happened 25 years ago because all that has changed. So there are some benefits to having the junior attorney. Um, so for me, other than not having to pay for a learning curve, yeah. I'm 100% fine with that. Yeah, it, it is definitely a, like a, it's like this challenge because you're like, <laughs> like you got to learn somewhere. Like, I mean, Josh and I had to learn somewhere, you know, <laughs> like someone has to give you that opportunity, but there's, you know, but, but I have to do this through as well. Like I end up arguing more the opposite way. I'm usually saying, why do I have the senior partner on this basic claim billing me of this amount when you can have a much junior person? That's where I usually see the disconnect is that way. Yeah, yeah. Like put a more junior person on this case is a really straightforward case. But sometimes what I see too is like, like you'd mentioned like that those very small, small claims. Sometimes you need a more seasoned person to handle the small claims to get it just done. Versus like having a young, someone who's younger and less experienced who might just like, kind of like run through the motions. Cause sometimes it just takes a more seasoned person. Like this will be a three call case. I can make three right. calls, probably yeah. get this done very quickly without doing anything else. Um, but a younger person might be like, oh, well, you know, I got a, I got a trial and, you know, municipal court. I have to, to I have to prepare. Well, that's interesting <laughs> to say that because as I mentioned earlier, we had created this early claim resolution team. 
um, in claims to kind of get those smaller cases settled as quickly as possible. Um, and the assumption is usually, well, that's where you put your most junior person. I'm, and I've always said exactly what you said. No, to really negotiate and to identify those cases and try to get them settled, you really have to understand claims. You really have to have strong negotiating skills to be able to recognize and get those cases settled before they speak to an attorney or to their neighbors or someone else. So there are really different skill sets. Um, you know, I've had people, I've interviewed someone once and she said to me, um, she was working for a corporation and they also sold ice cream. And the claimant like just loved their ice cream. She actually sold the case like for a thousand dollars worth of gift certificates for the ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that kind of creativity mm -hmm. um, kind of comes along with an experienced person and recognizes this doesn't always have to be about dollars and cents. Sometimes yes. you have to understand what the person's currency is. And, then, you know, and once you understand their currency, then try to get the case settled. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain nuance and understanding like people <laughs> and like, it's, it's kind of like something you totally learn. It's just some of its experience. Some of it's just personality, I think. And uh, like, like just getting how people work and like, like that, like knowing the currency of what, what's really going to get this to the finish line. Yeah. I had a really tough case a few years back and it was horrible. These two young boys, they were brothers. Um, and they end up dying in this horrific auto accident, um, and they were survived by a third brother. Um, and 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 so the tendency is, okay, this is a really bad case. I need to put all this money up on it. And I was like, I'm not sure how much money we can put. This family just lost their two sons. I think one was 13, one was 14. But they had immigrated to this country a few years back, and so. My whole thing is start telling a story about instead of just going to dollars. Like if you immigrated to this country, came for the American dream, what's the American dream? It's like education, it's home ownership, right? So start putting numbers towards that. Look, I can't bring your sons back, but the one that you have here, college education, paid for. When he comes out of college, right? He wants to buy a home, paid for. Mm -hmm. So those type of things are going to cost you a lot less than trying to write the $10 million check. You can just sell that story, sell that dream, and they'll start going, oh, yeah, now they're putting value to the dollars. Where 10 million means nothing, just more zeros. But all of a sudden, they're thinking, all right, my son's education, we don't have to worry about that. Home ownership, all those type of things, yeah. and that's going to come at a lot less cost. That's how we have to start being more creative as opposed yes. to just trying to write a check all the time. Yeah, and like sometimes people just want to be like heard and and felt you know and you know and I think sometimes we forget that the emotional aspect to a claim like again like we're we are in it all the time so we're like we just look at it very pragmatically but then sometimes you have to remember on the plaintiffs they are feeling this you know or you know you know we put a value on like oh okay well they have radiating pain or whatever I'm like okay but like well, this person might have radiating pain every day. And like, this is like emotional to them. Like they, and you know, sometimes you have to detach yourself from it, but then also sometimes you have to attach yourself to it and be like, okay, like put myself in their shoes. Like what will make them, you know, what will make this softer for them? Maybe it's not dollars. It might be something else. Um, so it's, it's a little outside the box thinking. Right. And sometimes too, it's, it's just kind of the train that we've gotten as well. Years ago, I used to do a lot of, um, medical malpractice cases. And I know that most of back then, my trip has changed today, a lot of doctors were told you, you never, you know, apologize for anything, you never admit anything. And, 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 and so that's the guidance that they were given probably from the general counsel or something. You just never admit anything, you don't apologize. But sometimes to be honest, and to your point, all the person kind of wants is apology or, or something acknowledging something and then and kind of go away. But um, I can see from a legal perspective sometimes why you, you give that kind of guidance to never do that. But it's one of those things you, you have to be there and be able to make that call yourself. Like I could be able to size that person up and say, look, I just really think they just want to be heard and they just want me to acknowledge something here. And that's well, and that comes in a huge play at like mediations. You know, if, if when 
you know, you don't necessarily need your insured at a mediation, but sometimes having the insured to be there and say, like, I'm sorry, this is happening, or even if it's the, 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 the claims professional there as well, but I'm sorry this happened to you and you're not admitting faults, but you're saying, I, I'm sorry. And that could go so far with, with that plaintiff just to feel like, oh, I, I you know, they hear me and they, right. they feel like they, they understand what I'm going through and they're not out here just to attack me or, you know, not to give me money They you know, we're just trying to come up with the right, the number that makes the most sense. Correct. Um, well, we're just about out of time. I don't, I know, and you, I know you have something coming up after this, so I don't want to take too much of time, but I don't want to let you go before I ask you this, you know, knowing what you know now going through, you know, all that you've done in your career and being where you are, are now, what advice would you give your younger self? Wow. That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like to end it with this like thinker question. <laughs> right. I, I would say this like, Obviously, as I said at the beginning, how we started, this was not a planned choice for me. I kind of fell into this. And I'm really happy because it's really given me um, the ability to, to have all the experiences I've had living in a different country. I've done a lot of traveling, things I wouldn't have done had it not been for this industry. Um, but if I had to kind of go back, well, it's kind of hard because if I go back now, I kind of know what the future lies. So my career track might be a little different because I do counsel a lot of young folks coming into the industry. I sit on an advisory board for RISE, RISE Insurance Star Executives, and you have to be 35 years of age or younger to be part of that. I just sit on the board. Um, and some of the counsel that I'm saying, it, you know, to them, the advice I give to them, I guess, is the same thing I would give to myself. That the... The industry is really about data. <laughs> and, and when we're young, we never even think about it. We didn't start thinking about data until like recently. But that's what it really is. We, in, in the past, we thought it was more about okay, all the data I need is in my head, right? So I use my memory. <laughs> um, I use my judgment. Um, and then implicitly, my bias comes out. That's how I make decisions, right? It's so my memory, my judgment, my bias. And, but it's really about getting data. And when I started, obviously with no computer, I couldn't Google things. But I think the thing I would have done more was get a lot more information from other people. Yeah. You know, I've done some of that, I'm glad I did, but I've done it a lot more that, you know, if you're sitting there at your 20 something years old, you know, and I, I wanna be on the fast track, I'm thinking about all those, these things I wanna do, and I wanna be strategic. I should be spending a lot of time with a person that's been doing it for 30 something years, longer than I've been on the earth at that time, and really picking their brains before yeah. they exit out of the industry. Because that's kind of like what happened. By the time I figured it out, a lot of the really seasoned people had long retired <laughs> and were gone. And so all that knowledge walked out the door and, and kind of left my industry. I would have tapped into that a lot more if I yeah. feel that. I think that that is really good advice because that's something I'm like thinking of myself. I'm like, yeah, like it just like asking more questions and being more of a sponge. Right. And, and, like, and I, I do feel at least for myself at that time, like you, you, I was always very concerned about taking too much time away uh, from, from the, the more experience. Cause I'm like, they're so busy. They are so important. They have all this stuff going on. I don't want to bother them. And like, if you have to kind of let go of that and be like, but I, but I, they're he, like, they could help, like help me. I don't want to take the time away, but also like, it's a benefit to them too, to, to have me like learn from them. So it's, it's hard though. I think when you're younger too, cause you just don't, you don't want to be a nuisance either. At least I never want, I would always like, Oh, I don't want to bother them. <laughs> exactly. And I would add one point to that. Cause I, I do that now and much later going back. I was, I would have created my circle of excellence a lot sooner. Like if yeah. you leave a company, don't leave the people behind. If you know someone that's really good in coverage, at your last company or someone's really good in you know auto pd keep those connections with you and always use that as your resource as you move through your career yeah that that is very good advice also advice i would have given myself <laughs> yeah. um well nigel i appreciate you taking the time to to join us today i i i, I appreciate when anyone takes the time away from their their busy schedules to join us on the podcast and everything that you you know we've talked about today. Like I, I, 
you've offered so much knowledge and insight into, you know, how you look at claims and the metrics and, you know, and just your experience. So I really appreciate you, sh you sharing it all with us. So thank you so much for, for joining us today. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, uh, Nacho. And then for all our listeners out there, of course, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to The Defense Never Rest. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are also, you can find us on YouTube at TDNR Podcast. And, you know, please subscribe and stay tuned.